You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We're going to look today at um, Luke's account of the resurrection, actually just the first part of Luke's account of the resurrection, 12 verses. If you have a worship folder, the, the text is printed there. It's Luke 24, uh, verses 1 through 12. This is not the whole of Luke's, everything that Luke has to say about the resurrection, it's, but it is, uh, it is the very first part of uh, the resurrection account. And I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to please stand one more time uh, for the reading of God's Word. Luke 24, starting at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that's the women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray before we get started. Lord, uh, please forgive me my sins uh, and enable me now to speak clearly, speak honestly and give us all ears to hear and minds to understand you. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. A couple of days ago, I got an email from a Vanity Fair magazine. And the subject line of the email was, Can Derek Chauvin's trial create real change? Now, Derek Chauvin, of course, is the former police officer who is accused of unlawfully killing George Floyd. We have a lot of eyeballs on that trial right now. But let me ask you, how, how would you answer Vanity Fair's question? Can, can Derek Chauvin's trial create real change? I think the answer is yes and no. 
it might result, I suppose, in improved police procedures. It might result in, in people being more sensitive to racial issues. It might result in justice for criminal behavior. But if, if those changes happen, those changes are at best marginal, right, and temporary. Procedures can be ignored. Attitudes can change. Prisoners can be paroled. Any change that the Derek Chauvin trial might effect is not real change if by real change Vanity Fair means organic, permanent, you know, root level, heart level change. I mean, if that's going to happen, it has to happen at a whole different level. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a Yale professor and philosopher. Uh, he lost a young son a number of years ago, a young adult son, in a climbing accident and wrote a book about it. It's a searingly honest book called Lament for a Son. And in that book, uh, Wolterstorff observes that although we humans have managed to solve a lot of problems throughout world history. Uh, there will abide, says Walter Storff, two things with which we must cope. The evil in our hearts and death. Think about that, right? Those two evils, the, 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 our internal evil, right? The things we know about ourselves that we don't tell other people and death, our inevitable deaths, pose a universal dilemma, <clears throat> don't they, that resists any human answer. People are gonna continue to hate, to hurt one another, to think more of themselves than others, to be callously indifferent to others, to kill, to die. The Derek Chauvin trial is not going to change those things. If human evil, right, and human death are really going to change, then you and I need a reality from outside of ourselves to do that, to make that kind of change. And that, friends, is what Easter's all about. Easter is A reality coming in from the outside of us, outside of our world, outside of our experience, and changing us, transforming us from the inside out. When the women came to the tomb that Sunday morning to anoint Jesus' dead body with aromatic spices, that was the practice. He had been buried quickly because of the Sabbath. And they were coming to put these aromatic spices on his body. The, the Jewish practice typically was to then, you know, let the body decay. Uh, those spices would cover the odor. And then once the body had decayed, the bones would be collected and put in a bone box, an ossuary. So that's what they were doing there that day. They came to put these spices on his dead body, and they, met, they, they meet uh, two angels, men in dazzling apparel, uh, and, uh, who ask them a pointed question. It's really a, rebu uh, a rebuke in a way. Why do you seek the living among the dead? 
right? They were looking for a living Jesus uh, inside of a tomb. And in a similar way, we are looking for living answers to our real problems of evil and death in a dying and broken world. We need to change where we're looking for answers. And I would put it to you on this Easter Sunday morning where we need to look for the, the answers to, to human evil and death is the risen, living Jesus. I want to unpack the resurrection of Jesus as Luke introduces it to us here under three headings. Okay, here's the outline. First, the centrality of the resurrection. Second, the necessity of the resurrection. And then third and finally, the result of the resurrection. The centrality, the necessity, and the result. So first, the centrality of the resurrection. You know, the women went into Jesus' tomb and he wasn't there. The tomb uh, was empty. And the fact of the matter is that our faith, the Christian faith, Christianity, stands or falls on the historical truth that Jesus physically, bodily, was raised from the dead. If that's not true, even the Apostle Paul, in, in his letter to the Corinthian church, says that what I'm doing today is uh, empty, futile, a waste of time. Preaching is a waste of time. Faith in Jesus is a waste of time. If he was not actually, really, in history, physically raised from the dead. Now you may say that poses a real problem for me because I can't scientifically prove the resurrection. And you're right, I can't. But you need to remember something. Science is the study of the repeatable. History, that was my subject in college, history is the study of the unrepeatable. I know we have that maxim that, that history repeats itself, but it doesn't really, right? It, it, you know, there might be a World War I and a World War II, so history repeats itself in, okay, there are recurring wars, but World War I is uniquely different from World War II. They're not the same. Historic events, every historic event, every historic, every moment is by its nature unrepeatable. The last five seconds are not to be repeated ever again. Right? Events happen, time marches on. So you don't prove history like you prove something scientifically in a laboratory. Science depends on repeatability. But as far as history is concerned, right, where we are studying unique, unrepeatable events in time, the fact of the matter is, and the scholars will affirm this, is that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best attested events in ancient history. Historiography, in terms of historiography, we are on solid ground when we consider the resurrection. 
Now you may say again, well, Ted, a, an empty tomb by itself proves nothing, and you're right again. It doesn't. Lots of reasons why that tomb might be empty. But the empty tomb isn't the all the emptiness of the tomb isn't the only uh, evidence that we have, right? And and although we just read the first part of, of Luke's account, if you go on to the to, and and keep reading, what you discover is that besides the fact that the tomb was empty, there were numerous interactions with Jesus after he died. Those interactions are recorded by each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also by uh, the Apostle Paul in his letters. And all of the good scholarship today will tell you that the gospel documents and, and Paul's letters are very early documents. I mean, they, they, they were written very close in time to the events they record. In some cases, maybe within 20 years. 20, 30 years of, uh, uh, of the events. And the real interesting thing, and we see it here in, in Luke's account, is that these documents also do something very interesting. They name names. Right? We have a group of women who went to the tomb. We don't know who all of them were, but we know three of them. Mary Magdalene, a one-time demon-possessed prostitute. Joanna, who we learn in another part of the Bible, was an administrator in the house of Herod. And, and a woman named Mary, the mother of James. Now, why, why does Luke put in those names? It's, it seems like uh, an unnecessary detail. Well, the answer is because the way you did it, you did history back then, was more like we do journalism today. When, you know, when we read, you know, a journalistic piece, we are inclined, aren't we, to discount uh, a, a, a a piece of uh, news writing that depends upon unnamed sources. Undisclosed sources, anonymous sources. Now, that, there's, of course, a lot of that flying around, especially on the Internet. But, but solid, good journalism names their sources, right? So that the story can be verified, it can be confirmed. And that's exactly what Luke is doing here. Luke was uh, a doctor, but he was also a very competent amateur historian and he's doing history like you were supposed to do back then you name names and basically what that is is an invitation to say if you if, if you want to check this story out here are three women you can talk to they saw it they heard it they will confirm what i have written all, the bible accounts the new testament accounts were all written to be verified by their readers why do we know the name of the man who carried Jesus' cross? Know the names of his sons. Right? These, are, these were given because when those documents were written, the original readers were being invited to check it out. Check this out. If you don't believe me, check my witnesses. Check my sources. 
And obviously that happened. Those, those read, early readers must have checked their, the sources uh, before they died off, right? Otherwise, Christianity would have never gotten out of the blocks. It never would have, it, it would have died before it started. And yet it took off, right? It just took off and took over the world. You know, these histori- historical accounts are also um, credible because they, they satisfy what the historians call uh, the criterion of embarrassment, right? They're written in such a way that uh, the early founders of Christianity look a little silly, look a little embarrassed, embarrassing, right? The women didn't believe Jesus. They had, they had remembered what Jesus had told him, them, but they didn't believe it. They went to the tomb uh, not believing what Jesus had told them, but expecting a dead Jesus. And the, and the 11 disciples, uh, the men disciples that they reported back to, they didn't initially believe in the resurrection either. They thought the women were telling an idle tale, right? And, and historians will tell you, historians... Uh, especially of, of comparative religion uh, and, and uh, of mythology and legend, saying, if, you know, if you're, if you're going to inv- write something that you want people to believe that isn't true, you, you write it in, in, in such a way that you make the, the founders, the, 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 you know, the, the pillars of your made-up religion, you make them credible. You don't make them embarrassing. And you know, with apologies now to the to 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 the women in our crowd in in ancient Near East, the testimony of women was discounted. It was not uh, they were the, the testimony of women was inherent. It was deemed to be inherently unreliable. Uh, so so you you know if you're writing if you're inventing a religion, you don't make its first witnesses, its prime eyewitnesses, women. It was a huge embarrassment. It was a big hurdle for Christianity. A lot of the early critics of Christianity said, you can't believe it, it's a women's tale. Why would you write it that way unless it happened that way? There are, there are a couple other things that make these, these this accounts of the risen Jesus, the resurrection, credible. And one is the descriptions of Jesus are not what you'd expect. Uh, again, you go, you go to the experts in comparative religion, mythology, and whatnot. They, they say, you know, if, if you're reading the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, and, and you know, and you see these accounts of how the angels appear, right? These luminescent, dazzling figures. Uh, every expectation of a risen Messiah is going to be that he's some kind of a Superman, right? This dazzling uh, just awesome figure, right? More like the angels were. Uh, but, but in fact, that's not what happens, right? You, you discover that the risen Jesus is pretty much a normal human being, right? He eats, he drinks, he barbecues. He favored barbecued fish. He could be touched, could be argued with. He still had wounds in his hands and feet and side from his crucifixion. And yet, 
as normal as all that is, there was some things that were weird, right? He apparently could appear and disappear at will. There was, there, his, they had, his body had some ability to sort of move through dimensions of reality, uh, you know, instantly. He would appear and then reappear, appear and disappear, even in, in the middle of locked rooms. That's kind of alarming. Uh, and, and, and oddly too, sometimes he was recognizable and other times he wasn't. There would be people, you know, he would walk with, with, with people who knew him and yet they didn't recognize him. And actually, we're gonna, you know, Luke talks about this and it's appropriate at, at communion because these t- disciples were you know, lamenting the death of Jesus, walking along with him, telling Jesus the story of his own death. They didn't know they were talking to Jesus. They get, they get to, to their home, they invite Jesus in, and strangely, this invited guest acts like the host, and he sits at the head of the table, says the blessing, and breaks the bread. Right? The bread of, that we now break right at the Lord's table. And it says, they, when he broke the bread, they recognized him. And then, poof, gone. So, it's strangely normal, but strangely supernatural. Um, and you know, all that, and, and there was one other thing, that, and, and Luke mentions it here. Uh, it, it's the linen cloths that wrapped his body. Did you notice that Luke makes special mention of that? We, he tells us that Peter stooped into the tomb. He ran to the tomb, stooped in, saw the linen cloths by themselves, and then marveled, at what had happened. Now that's a pretty bare bones description. John's account actually fleshes out what happened because John was, happened to also be there and he stooped in and looked in too. Both Peter and John stooped in, looked in, saw the linen cloths and there was something about the linen cloths that, was, that, that actually caused both Peter and John to believe in the resurrection before they had even seen the risen Jesus. And the way John describes it, I think the best way to, 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 to translate what they were seeing, right? They're, they're seeing something that they have no categories for. But essentially, right, Jesus' body was wrapped up. It's like a mummy. That's what you, you wrapped up bodies like a mummy with linen cloth, linen strips, and, and, there, would, and there was a space for his face, which would be left open, but then his head would be wrapped. And what they saw was a mummy still wrapped up with a body gone. And the space, there was a space between the headpiece and the body piece. And it was sort of, it was collapsed down like a cocoon, like an empty cocoon. Now, you know, you and I can, you know, we, we're, you know, we're, we're the, you know, the Star Wars generation, right? We grew up with special effects and, and computer graphics. And so the, maybe the idea of appearing and disappearing and, and, and you know, disi- you know b- wrapped up mummies, you know, being still wrapped up but the body gone, somehow materializing out of those things. That we can almost imagine because they can do that in the movies. They didn't have that. 
And, and yet here they're describing these things, uh, and there's no precedent in history, there's no precedent in any religious writing or mythology for these sorts of descriptions of the risen Jesus. It, it, they are unique, and because of their uniqueness and their honesty, they seem, they, they have a, that ring about them that, it, that it's true. Two more interesting things about the centrality of the resurrection. One, and one that, that really affected me as a, as a young man who was in college, who was doubting his faith and, and kind of coming back to it and re-owning it, was the, was the change in the disciples' behavior after they had encountered the risen Jesus. Right? It, what, what you see here, right, are, are cringing, afraid, uh, men uh, afraid that what's going to happen to what ha- just happened to Jesus is going to happen to them, uh, not believing in the resurrection. They 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 they're they're just as convinced as everybody else that Jesus is dead, and, and then they they encounter the risen Jesus, and and all of a sudden they are different men, right? Again, it's it's not proof. I understand that, but it's a piece of evidence. That these men had changed, and now they were fearless. And even going to their deaths, they wouldn't recant their testimony that I saw Jesus. He was alive three days after he was killed. And that changes everything. And the other thing that, that uh, I, it's another interesting sidebar fact, and it's, it's sort of an argument from from um, absence, but it's, it, it's, an, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Jesus' tomb never became a shrine. You know, go to Israel, they'll show you a couple of tombs that they say might be Jesus' tomb. They have no idea. We have no idea where Jesus' tomb was or is now. Uh, it never became a shrine, and that in itself is weird. Because, you know, the, the tombs of other great leaders, especially religious leaders, always become shrines. But Jesus' tomb never became a shrine. Why? Because they had Jesus, right? He's alive. He's on the loose. Why make his tomb a shrine? We have him. So, you, you, you come down to it. As you study it, the most credible historical explanation for the rise of Christianity, for the continuing growth of Christianity, is this central fact, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And, it's, and there it is, attested. It's, it's, it is the most credible historical explanation we have. And, and a, now, if you're, a, if you're a skeptic, that's a problem for you, right? Because if, if you do the work and you, and you say, you know, the most credible historical explanation is a supernatural happening. That's right. Now, so some of you may still say, you know, I, 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 I don't have a good alternate explanation 
for what caused the empty tomb and the subsequent appearances of Jesus or the change in the apostles' behavior. So, so I, don't, I don't have an alternate explanation for it, so I'm going to still maintain my belief that dead people don't rise, and therefore my belief is that something else happened even though I can't tell you what it is. Now, that's fair enough. I respect that response, but understand that that's a choice. You're choosing to believe that dead people don't rise uh, and that something else happened. It's that, that, that decision is not compelled by the historical evidence. And in fact, the historical evidence would lead you to conclude otherwise. What that deci- what's driving that kind of response is essentially worldview. Right? What we've got here today is a clash of worldviews. It comes down to a, a worldview that allows for a God of creation, a God of justice, and worldviews that don't. Worldviews that allow for a God of compassion, a God of life, and worldviews that don't. I, I love the way... Uh, theologian Tom Wright put it, uh, he says, for Christians, the resurrection is not an odd event within the world as it is, but it's the utterly characteristic, prototypical, and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. See, that's, Jesus came, it's a unique, unrepeatable event and his primary mission was not to do what every other religious leader does, is give us ethical teaching, although he did give us ethical teaching. No, Jesus came to usher in new creation, to change evil and death, to bring the answer to evil and death. And in his life, death, and resurrection, that's exactly what he did. He ushers in a world that has the only answer to evil and death. And that brings us to the second point. And the other two are quicker. The necessity of the resurrection. Uh, did you notice what the angels said to the, to the women? Uh, verses 5 through 7. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, and that's a title for Jesus, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Every text has this. Jesus, in fact, when the risen Jesus is talking to the disciples later in Luke, this, this notion of mustness, there was a mustness about the death and resurrection of Jesus. The women didn't get that. Neither did the 11 surviving disciples. As as one of my PCA colleagues succinctly put it, they knew Jesus had died. What they didn't know is that he had to die. They knew he had died. They didn't know he had to die. A lot of people think today that Jesus was a victim. That, he, that if he'd played his cards right, he wouldn't have had to go to the cross. But that's 180 degrees off the mark. Jesus knew from the get-go that he had to go to the cross and rise from the grave three days later. That's why he came. 
That was his mission. That's what must happen. He didn't die to be a model of self-giving love for the world. He didn't die as an example for you to follow. He didn't die as a martyr to be emulated. Jesus died because he had to. It was the only way to deal finally and definitively with your two biggest problems, evil and death. Jesus died as your substitute, your substitute. Think of Jesus' body as, as one big sponge. In, you know, in a sense, it's a big sponge. On the cross, Jesus' body soaked up all of the evil of his people. All the sin, guilt, shame, regret, secrets, hates, lusts, selfishness, self-righteousness, unbelief, arrogance, half-heartedness, failures. He soaked it all up in his body like a sponge. And then he was put to death. Then he was killed. Three days later, Jesus' death, that death was accepted by God and vindicated by God by raising him from the dead. So Jesus, by dying, killed your guilt and shame. By rising, he reversed your death sentence. So you, every one of you, if you are trusting, if you have faith in Jesus, in what he accomplished, you will, like Jesus then, live every day, starting now, and even beyond the day of your dying, you will live with God in a new and redeemed relationship with God with all of the security and the joy and the peace and the significance and the value and the importance that that brings. Friends, with all the breathless reporting 24-7 coming at you from the cable news, understand this is what's really important. This is the answer to the ultimate problems. The cross and the empty tomb. It's the answer we need from outside of ourselves. And that brings us to the final heading, the result of the resurrection. You know, I, if, I, if you had asked me to summarize the result of the resurrection in one word, I'd say hope. On the other great day in the Christian year, Christmas, right, we sing, O little town of Bethlehem, and there's that line in that uh, in that. Christmas carol that says the, the hopes and fears, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee, Jesus, tonight. At Christmas, God moved into the neighborhood and Jesus grew up and took on evil and death for us by his physically dying and bodily rising in history. Jesus now gives you renewed hope why? Because now, since the cross and since the empty tomb, human power, human wealth, human evil, and, human, and even human death itself do not get the last word. Jesus does. United to Jesus by faith, you need not be afraid and you need never die. And the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, tells us 
uh, what that hope is going to look like fully realized. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, says Jesus, I am making all things new. And it's this hope that Jesus bought for you and me by his dying and rising that powers us today. We're reanimated, right? We're, Jesus called, used the metaphor of birth, right? We've been born again. We're, we're not just, you know, we're not just, you know, being driven by human power. We're being driven now by his Holy Spirit. And, and, it's, and it, what, it, what powers us in the world to work as Jesus' ambassadors to, to, to continue his transformation that he started at the cross in the empty tomb. Christians, as you're united to Jesus by faith, right, we have everything, we don't fear anything, and we are empowered and enabled now to live and to die like Jesus, to pray confidently, to rest securely, to love boldly, to serve selflessly, to forgive freely, and to broadcast the good news that there really is an answer to the world's evil and death, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. He is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, these historical accounts of your death and resurrection. Thank you for the faith that embraces it. I pray, Lord, that we would all believe, help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.